0: Lord, surely your word is powerful. It brings to us words of hope. It points us to you. It helps to penetrate hardened hearts. It brings life. It also sanctifies and makes us holy. So Lord, we thank you that we are privileged today to have your word in our language and that your word is provided to us as a means of grace, as a means of help, and as a way of pointing us to you. So Lord, we pray that your word today will point all of us to Christ. And toward that end, we pray that we might, in encountering you, the true and living Christ, we pray that we might find our hearts resonating with a sense of wonder, love, and amazement. For We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you knew that you had only 24 hours to live, what would you be saying to your family? What issues would you discuss with them if you knew that your departure was imminent? Last week we began a study of Jesus' farewell discourse with those 11 apostles, those 11 disciples that he had been training up, spending time with for three years. Jesus knew that his death by way of crucifixion was definitely at hand. He knew it. And so he addressed a number of concerns as he had a few moments with them. The night on the eve before his death, he drew them close and he helped to prepare them for all of the dramatic changes that were about to take place. He provided to them a number of wonderful promises, helpful promises and assurances. And he even allowed them to eavesdrop on an extended time of prayer that he spent with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. While in that garden, Jesus interceded for those eleven disciples and for those who would believe based on their witness, And who would trust in Christ. We found that in chapter 17 of John's Gospel. If you have that book open in front of you, we're looking at John chapter 17. And actually, I'd like to uh, remind you again, the whole chapter of 17 is devoted to this prayer. It's an amazing, insightful portion of Scripture. And last week we noticed in verses 20-24 to that Jesus prayed for our church. He prayed for His people, for Christians. And he prayed that we would be united. This morning we're going to consider another prayer that Jesus was concerned about and prayed for. But before we read that, I'd like to go back to John chapter 16 just for a moment in looking at uh, something else that Jesus talked about before he prayed for them in those moments of preparation. Pew Bible, it's page 1285. We're in chapter 16. As we listen in again to the, the words of Jesus as he brought, brought those disciples close to him and explained to him what was going to happen, what they needed to know, and as they listened to him in this intimate intercessory prayer, again, I think it's, so, it's been impressed upon me again how deep and how compassionate Jesus' love is for those disciples. You can say clearly that he did not forsake them. This was his expression of his love to them. He's preparing them to courageously face that inevitable time when the sorrow and the suffering was going to overwhelm them, and he's promising them that their sorrow would eventually be turned into what they could not even imagine at the time into joy. Look at John chapter 16 verse 20. John 16:20. Truly, truly, or in the Greek, amen, amen. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And then he uses an illustration of how that can possibly be true. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Amen, women. All mothers out there. Okay, well, I heard some weak amens, and uh, but anyway, uh, probably some screams earlier in life. But anyway. Uh, Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And watch this. And no one will take your joy away from you. How can he make that promise? Because he's convinced there's something happening here that is spiritually dynamic and powerful that the world will never understand or comprehend. Jesus is promising to his disciples an abiding, enduring joy. And moments later, Now we can look at John 17. I want us to notice he had already set that up as a promise, as an assurance. And now in chapter 17 in his prayer, let's pick it up now in verse 13 of John 17. He specifically is going to pray that they would enter into his joy. But now he prays, I come to you, talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, that is my disciples, may have my joy made full in themselves. So here is Jesus praying not only that his church be united, he's also praying that his church be a joyful church. The apostles who wrote the New Testament made the concept of joy a recurring theme throughout the rest of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the verb... To rejoice is found over 72 times in the writings of the New Testament. The noun joy is found 60 times. And so as we consider this idea of joy, I want to just back up before as part of the introduction here. I want us just to understand the concept of joy, to try to distinguish it from other kinds of um, erroneous concepts or ideas about joy. By reminding you, first of all, that joy is not an emotional reaction like happiness. I am going to suggest to you that happiness and joy are not the same thing at all. Our feelings tend to be often an unthought, automatic reaction to the events and circumstances around us. For example, we are happy, and there is some song about being happy, right? Happy, happy, happy. We are happy when we find a clothing outfit that we love on sale. Oh, I'm so happy. I got this on sale. They had the right size. Or we're happy. This is me. We're happy when we miss all the red traffic lights. They're all green, just one after the other. It's like, wow, I'm so happy. I don't have to sit in this traffic all day. And then some of us are happy when we receive a compliment from a friend that we really trust. And they say something nice about us or they compliment something about us and we're like, wow, I just feel so happy that you said that. Now joy, on the other hand, I'm going to suggest is not so much oriented toward our feelings. Joy, I would suggest to you, is part of an attitude. It's an outlook. It's part of a deep down abiding sense of well-being that is not dependent upon our circumstances it's not dependent upon the people around us it's not dependent upon people saying nice things to us i'm making a distinction here between joy and happiness joy i would argue is the overflow of a heart that is satisfied in jesus And therefore, I've said in your notes, rejoicing, then, is a willful response of satisfaction. A willful response of delight in God, despite our circumstances. And that's why you can come to a book like James, James chapter 1. I've been meditating on this text quite a bit in the last few months, and I needed to. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren... When you encounter not pleasant circumstances, when things go well for you, when the breeze is blowing in your face and you're enjoying all the blessings of life, he doesn't say that. He says, "Consider it all joy, my brother." When you encounter various what trials, difficulties, problems, when the kids are sick, when the washing machine is in the rinse cycle and it stops doesn't work anymore. When you've got water in your basement because of a horrendous amount of rain this week, or you get caught in in an incredible uh, automatic lake that formed in the place that you were driving this past week, or another weekend goes by and you still have no word from your grown daughter or son. You still haven't received word from them and it's been a long time since you've heard from them. He says, consider it all joy. How can you consider it? How can you reckon it? How can you add up all those things and say, well, I'm filled with joy? That seems illogical to the world. And it is. Because what does he go on to say in James 1? He says, because you know that the testing of your faith is producing something in you. That God's working in this situation. That God is trying to develop perseverance in your life. And that's a good thing then you can count it to be something that's joyous. We don't rejoice when things are awful and evil. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that we rejoice in God because of knowing that He's at work in that situation. Here's another statement I put in your notes there under introduction. Joy grows in the soil of a heart that fully trusts in Christ. That joy is definitely connected strongly to the idea of trusting God. And trust in Christ. An example here would be 1 Peter 1.8. Here we read Peter writing, by the way, during the time in which uh, Nero is wreaking havoc in the Roman world against Christians. And while Christianity is expanding and growing exponentially, here is Herod trying politically to save his neck. He's blaming everything bad on these Christians and he's uh, killing them right and left, burning them alive throwing them to the the savage lions as a form of entertainment. And here is Peter writing to Roman Christians saying, Though you have not seen Christ, you love Him. And though you do not see Christ now, but you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible and full of glory. He says because you're trusting in Christ, even though you can't see Him, you're definitely filled with joy because of that. Despite all the craziness going on in the Roman Empire. Thirdly, another statement I say in the introduction: Joy grows and thrives as the Holy Spirit illumines our minds. I'd like to read another verse rather than the one that's in your notes. I'd like to read First Thessalonians 1 6. You might want to add that. Uh, the one in Romans is fine, but here I want to add to another one that's interesting. He says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, You became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? There's affliction going on here. And we're receiving the word with affliction. That is, there's difficult times as we embrace Christ. There's a lot of fallout that happens because of that. People aren't real thrilled about our loyalty and our trusting of Christ and how we are now suggesting that there's this major change in our lives. And so he says, in the midst of all the difficulties you encounter, you're filled with joy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has made it clear to you, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Well, there are many other sampling of verses I could show you in the Scriptures to try to help you see this point, that joy obviously cannot be experienced apart from God. This is why Jesus is praying for his followers. He is convinced that this is something that God needs to do in the hearts of his people is to help them have joy. It's not something that's natural. It's a supernatural phenomenon. And he says that he wants his followers to have his joy made full in them. Now before we go to our first point, I just want to back up and I just want to speak for a moment about maybe some of you who are here today and you say, well, I don't know what you're talking about with this idea of joy. I'm not happy all the day. I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about joy that is an outlook of life. There's a sense of, of being satisfied in your heart with all that Christ is. Because some of you, I'm convinced, you're never, you've never been made right with God in the sense of you still are at odds with God. Some of you have never humbled yourself. You've never admitted that there's inward and there's outward moral corruption in your life before a holy God. He sees it, and knows it all inside and out. And some of you perhaps are holding God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis would say. You put God on trial. And you're saying to God, listen, God, there are so many things that you've done in my life, there's so many things that you've allowed to happen, there's so many ways in which you've let me down, and you have ruined my plans, and therefore I have no reason to. Uh, find delight in you because all the different ways in which my life is screwed up and you're the cause of it all. And yet somehow you're overlooking the long list of ways that you have rebelled against God. You have defied His authority. And the reason we see all this brokenness in our world is because so many people have defied God. We've raised our fists to Him. We've gone our own way, our foolish ways. And we've committed various offenses against the holy and just Creator of all the earth. I would suggest to you that joy comes to those who admit that they're in need of a Savior. Joy is the inevitable response of those who repent, who turn from their own doing life on their own terms, and who come to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I have now received you and what you have done for me. Therefore, you become a great source of joy to me. Joy comes to those who receive the Gospel and fully rely upon Jesus' perfect life. Who fully rely upon Jesus' atoning death for their sins and those who gain assurance of the full forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You see, true joy is the overflow of a heart that marvels at God's gracious dealings with us because of Christ. Think of it. Joy is the natural, logical reaction of understanding that we have this exchange. We've exchanged our sin for Christ's righteousness. We've exchanged our punishment for Christ's forgiveness. And therefore, that's why I had Walter reading Isaiah 61. It is absolutely Indeed, a verse that if you don't understand the Gospel, it's obvious that you're not going to enjoy. But if you understand the Gospel, Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice. Not just with a ho-hum kind of, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty good news. No, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God. Why is He so joyful? Because He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If you know what it is to be naked and ashamed, fully exposed in all of your wickedness, all of your awful things you've thought, said, and done. To have that exposed and then to know that that's covered. And you can stand and enjoy God and not be ashamed. My friend, that is joy-inducing truth that sets you free. That's why we read in Acts 16, there's this hardened, indifferent, cynical jailer who's seen it all. He knows a ton of stories about all kinds of characters you wouldn't want to get anywhere close to that have been in and out of his jail for years. And here he is doing his normal thing, enjoying his miserable life, if you will. And here come these two missionaries coming through town. They're in jail. And all the sex things he knows, there's an earthquake. And literally his whole world is crumbling because if anybody escapes, he knows he's gone. His life will be lost. And so he begins to be aware of the fact that he's a mortal creature. His his hours are numbered. All of a sudden he realizes, my life doesn't add up to anything. There's nothing I have to hang on to now. And he's aware of these men, Paul and Silas, and what they've been saying about Christ. And so he says, what must I do to be saved? The answer is, what? Get yourself together, go to church, be baptized, do something. No, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then listen to this amazing concept in Acts 16. The same guy that had them beaten, the same guy that didn't give a rip about them, had them thrown into the jail in the wee hours of the night, we read that he rejoiced, offering them hospitality, offering them food, offering them some sort of medicine and ways to help their bandages and things. He rejoices having believed in God with all his household. That's true joy, my friend. It's found when we come to Christ. It's found when we find ourselves clothed with the righteousness of Christ by faith. Now, having laid that foundation, I want to move then into this direction of understanding what are, what are some means by which Jesus' joy can then be made full to us. I want to just consider two things this morning regarding that question. How are, what means can we then have Jesus' joy be made full to us? Number one. One factor necessary to develop a joyful church is biblical doctrine. Biblical doctrine. You say, oh, ho, hum. Can't you find something a little more exciting than that? Well, follow me here. Look at John 17, 13. Jesus taught his disciples many truths while he was in the world, so that they would have a joyous attitude. Look at John 17, 13. He says, "...these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves." He refers to the things that He's spoken. If you back up to John 15, verse 11, part of that long period of teaching on that night before He died, John 15, verse 11. Again, "...these things I have spoken." To you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Joy is rooted in the truth God has made known in His Word. None of us will ever know the joy of Christ apart from learning and reading and studying and meditating and memorizing the Word of God. I'm gonna say that again. None of us will ever know the fullness of this kind of joy that Jesus is talking about apart from learning and reading and studying and meditating and memorizing the Word of God. Look at Psalm 19, verse 8. Well, if you can't get there quickly, I'm going to read it, but you ought to jot it down and work, look at it later. Psalm 198 is, again, devoted to the revelation of God, revelation of God in nature, revelation of God in in his written word, and so we read Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord, that is, the the truths of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That is, the word of the Lord is, is right, giving joy to the heart. The scriptures are God's means of revealing himself to us. And so as we read the scriptures, we're seeing God revealed to us and we gain insight into His character. We gain insight into His wisdom, His goodness, His sovereignty. It all can be found in the pages of Scripture. Now, our growth group is patient, and they're patiently going along with me through a book that we've been reading called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Now, before I go further to say anything else about this book, I just want to say, we've been studying this book for a number of weeks now and months. Jerry Bridges writes a book about trusting God in a world that's broken, I think he says. Trusting God in a world that's falling apart or something like that. He knows what he's talking about. He's a person who's not immune from suffering. Jerry Bridges uh, records at the beginning of his book that his life was dramatically impacted at the age of 14 when his mother, who was in very good health, uh, they did not know or suspect anything was wrong with her, Heard an odd sound, a gasping, something that sounded quite unusual. And he left where he was in the home, and he went into his mother's bedroom, and there witnessed her sudden death at the age of 14. He was 14, watching this unfold, this nightmare. We also know he tells the story of how years later he's married, and his wife contracts cancer. And he walks with her through that very difficult process of seeing the ravages of that terrible disease and eventually sees her die. So he writes as a person who understands and has gone through severe chapters of of suffering and difficulty and loss and pain. And yet in the middle of it all, he's writing this book about trusting God. Now, what are you going to write about trusting God? Trust God like just be strong and just do it? No, the book is very helpful. Why? Because it contains a wide assortment of scriptures. There are passages after passages of scriptures explaining and illustrating the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God. For example, on one particular page, page, well, it's page 45 in the old version of the book that I have. Uh, they've edited and changed it, which causes great confusion in my growth group because I'm always quoting the wrong page to look at. But anyway... He says on one page, he quotes Job 42. God says, I know that, Job says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. That is, God is sovereign. His plans cannot be stopped by anybody. And then he says, Psalm 115, he quotes, Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He's sovereign. And then he says, Ephesians 1, he quotes that verse. Having predestined, uh, sorry, in Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will. Everything is worked out in conformity to His will. And then He says this here's a paragraph. He reads those, he, He quotes those scriptures, and then He makes this point. No plan of God's can be thwarted. When He acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back God's hand or bring Him to account for his actions he does as he pleases only as he pleases and he works out everything every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will such a bare unqualified statement of the sovereignty of god would terrify us if if that were all we knew about god but god is not only sovereign he is perfect in love and infinite in wisdom and the whole book expounds upon all those themes he is sovereign he is full of love and his wisdom is profound. And therefore, having taken us into Scripture, Jerry Bridges then is helping us begin to grapple with the fact that we can trust God, that what is happening in your life is not random events that have somehow, uh, like, a, like a railroad car that loses its braking ability and goes around a turn and goes out of control that we saw and heard about recently uh, there uh, north of New York City, It's actually saying that every single thing that happens in your life has come to you from a sovereign hand of God. I'm not saying God is the author of evil, but I'm saying that whatever has happened to you, He has permitted it. And let me tell you something. As I've meditated on these truths, as I've been working through this book with our growth group, these things have tremendously helped me have a different attitude, a different outlook in the last several painful months in our church life. God is sovereign. We are here by his sovereign hand. It's not a random world. He's in control. We can trust him. And so that's why Jesus, in his attempt to try to pull the disciples close to him on numerous occasions, he gives extensive teaching. Why? Because he's trying to expand the mental horizons of his people. We tend to see the light, we tend to see the world like this. This is the way it makes sense to me. Things should go this way. If it goes any other way, that's ridiculous. And so we, say, we just sort of see it that way. And so when you read scriptures, it takes the blinders off. And you say, oh, God has all kinds of things he's doing that I didn't even think about. Didn't even, couldn't even imagine those things are what God is doing. Initially, the disciples, all they could think of was tragedy and disaster when their Savior, when their Messiah, when their King is on a cross. But Jesus' teaching helped them to understand that his purposes and his dealings are much more clearly presented to them now. How else can you explain the fact that when the disciples, we read in Acts 5, are being are suffering shame for the sake of Jesus' name? How do they react to that? Go home discouraged, complaining. Is this what I signed up for? Come on! When all those promises that I was going to be a part of the kingdom, this is the kind of treatment we receive when I'm being faithful and doing what I'm supposed to do? No, this, we read in Acts 5.41. They were rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer shame on account of his name. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 gives us another amazing insight into Christians who react in ways that are just absolutely amazing. We read that the Christians in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, they endured a great ordeal of affliction. What kind of affliction? Well, that we know that they're poor. They don't have enough to make ends meet. But they also have an abundance of joy despite their deep poverty. An abundance of joy. (laughs) That just seems illogical apart from the Holy Spirit's work in helping them understand truth of how great God is and how great is our salvation and how great is God's grace in the midst of our trials. And that's why Habakkuk, the prophet, is so struggling to see all this advancement of the evil armies coming in, destroying the people of God, destroying his beloved uh, uh, homeland. But at the end of the book, having struggled, having tried to wrestle with making sense of it, it is Habakkuk who says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Now to you and me, that's, if you don't have olives, hey, life goes on, man. I am, not, I am not a fan of olives. No offense. But when you serve them to me, I'll eat one to be polite. But believe me, they're not my favorite. But for him, he is a farmer by trade. He is a farmer to survive. He is a farmer to find some means of, of life, uh, to support himself, and to find a means of, of provision. And so when he says none of these crops are coming in, he's looking at fo- total financial disaster as if he loses his job and the the market crashes. And he says, if the flock should be cut off in the fold, he says, even though all those horrible things may happen, he says, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in the God of my... He he says, I'm going to rejoice in God. Even though the worst kind of thing could possibly happen. What is your scenario that you could write in there? Even if this happened, even if this were happened, even if this were happened, I'll still rejoice in you, God. You say, oh, I don't want to write that in the blank because it might happen. Then that asks the question, is your joy in God or is your joy rooted to your circumstances? As we reflect upon the scriptures, we reflect upon the promises that God makes, it builds a sense of hope. Hope that assures us that God is in control. God is at work. God is sovereign. And biblical hope is not this kind of uncertain expectation that many people live by in which they say, well, perhaps that may happen. I'm crossing my fingers behind my back. Perhaps, uh, you know, uh, I hope that happens. That's the kind of, well, I'm not so sure, but I'm hoping, I'm try- I, I, I have some anticipation that perhaps that may happen. No, biblical hope is the confident assurance that God will bring about what He has promised. Biblical hope is the assurance that God is going to bring about what He has promised. And this hope, then, if you're, if you're sound in this understanding that there's hope and know that God has promises that are going to be kept, then you can do what? Then you can begin to have a response of joy in the circumstance of looking forward that there's a sense of joyful anticipation. That's why we read in Romans 12, verse 12, Paul says that there are those of us, when we're serving the Lord, we can be rejoicing in hope. We can be persevering in tribulation. We can be devoted to prayer. Maybe you've had a situation where you had this, a tribulation of some very difficult event in your life. It's a deep, deep valley you had to walk through. And as you were there, you thought, I'm never going to get out of this. It's going on and on and on. And then as you're praying in the middle of all that difficulty, you feel like, Lord, I'm not seeing the answer to this prayer. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. What he's saying in this text is that in the midst of those kind of circumstances, if we have a sense of hope in God, we can then begin to draw from that joy and anticipation that God is still at hand, God is still there, God is still working, God is going to keep His promises, and therefore as we confidently claim those promises, little, little elements of joy come into our attitude, into our outlook, into our perspective on where we are. I'm not talking about feeling joyful and walking around with a phony smile on your face saying, oh, everything's wonderful. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not asking you to be a fake phony with your emotions. I'm saying, yes, I grieve, yes, I'm sad, yes, I cry, but my joy is still in God. Because He keeps His promises. And I'm hanging on to those promises by His grace and for His glory. Another thing I would like to just comment on, again, I don't have time to expand on this, but if you look at Luke 6, there's another example, 6.23, Jesus talks about a time when you might be persecuted for being a faithful follower of Christ. What does he say in that situation? Well, he says, rejoice in that day. Rejoice when you're mistreated, when they, when they say something false about you, when it's really not true because of your loyalty to Christ. He says, yeah, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. What? Leap for joy? How about kick a rock or two, you know? How about demand your rights? No, he says, leap for joy. What? Indeed, your reward is great in heaven. He says, you don't see the full picture here. You might be rejected in this world, but let me tell you something. There's a wealth above you, coming to you that they can't even fathom, that they don't even know and enjoy, but you're going to have that and they'll have nothing. There's reason to rejoice. So here's my challenge for myself, for all of us. Am I and are we feeding our mind a steady supply of scriptural truth so that our minds and our hearts have something to hang on to? when we go through these inevitable trials and difficulties and testings and tribulations? Could it be that our sense of joy has evaporated because we rarely, if ever, shape our thinking by the truth of God's Word? We're too busy trying to figure it out ourselves, trying to make sense of it ourselves, trying to say, say, This is not working, and I don't like this. And we just go into our own thoughts and our own assessments rather than saying, Lord, I need to see this thing through your eyes. Give me a fresh sense of who you are in the midst of where I am. See, the Scriptures insist that there are realities that we cannot see with the human eye. I love that. We're becoming aware of things that can't be seen with the human eye. And that's why Romans 10 talks about faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word about Christ. So the more I hear about Christ, the more my faith has reason to, to be stronger and therefore to, to rely and trust in Him. Faith enables us to be assured of those things we hope for, to be conv- have strong convictions about things that are not seen. Are you sure that God's at work? You say, it sure doesn't look like it. Bingo! It doesn't look like it from a human point of view. That's where the Scripture helps you what? See what's really not there. You can't see it. You see the invisible hands of God at work in everything in life if you truly understand His sovereignty and His grace. Much more we could say about that, but it's a little warm and I'm going to keep moving. Number two. A second factor necessary to develop a joyful church is that there needs to be communion with Jesus. Ongoing communion with Jesus that will help us to overcome the inevitable joy robbers. Here in Jesus' prayer, he is insisting that his disciples would never know his joy apart from, I'm convinced, he's assuming that, they'll never know this joy, his answer to the prayer, will never come apart from abiding or remaining or communing with him. You say, where'd you get that? Look at John 15, 9. Just as the Father loved me, I have also loved you, abide in my love. Now what we learn by that is, Jesus is saying that his joy was the overflow, as he experienced this joy that he had, is the overflow of the moment-by-moment enjoyment that he has with his Father. He enjoys the wonders of God the Father and the relationship and the fellowship they have together. It's a sense of incredible oneness and, 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 uh, and respect and, and, and closeness that is, is, is hard to comprehend. But he's enjoying that. And in the joy that he has is what he says, I want you, therefore, as I enjoy that, I want you to, therefore, stay close to me and enjoy fellowship with me. And then you'll begin to share in, in what I already have and possess. Jesus' disciples will only have joy if they thrive in vital communion with Christ. Ongoing, moment-by-moment fellowship with Christ. and That's why you always see a connection, oftentimes about joy. You'll see joy linked to the one in whom we find the joy. Listen to these examples. Psalm 149. Let the children of Zion be joyful in Christ their king be joyful in your king and be glad in the lord and rejoice you righteous and shout for joy all you upright in heart be glad in the lord not in yourself not in your situation psalm 32 that's what that was and then of course philippians we just sang the little chorus right philippians 4 and philippians 3 1 he says rejoice in the lord Not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. There are so many joy robbers in this world. You know who they are, right? People who say they're going to do something, and they do the opposite. People who fail to follow through. People who go back on their promises. People who spread rumors about you behind your back. People who grumble and complain people who always seem to draw attention with what's wrong in the world. And I would even add another one. There are those joy robbers who are people who insist that it is never God's will that you suffer and who, when you are suffering, will suggest to you that you don't have enough faith because God has a miracle for you and therefore you shouldn't have to go through anything that's difficult in life. Man, that will rob you of joy because that is a false and incorrect statement it is from the pit of hell the health and wealth gospel is a false gospel there are many people and many situations that can rob us of joy but what i want to suggest to you this morning here and don't miss this vital point is that there is an abundance there is an overflow there is a superabundance. it's like going to the ocean and saying i wonder if i can find anything that's wet around here anything that's got some moisture, and you're standing at the edge of the ocean. If I'm desperately in need of joy, Jesus Christ is an endless, vast resource of joy if you stay close to Him and commune with Him and enjoy Him. Because Jesus' love never fails. Jesus' provisions are never exhausted. God will supply all our needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus, the Scriptures say. It is Jesus' faithfulness that's not just occasionally. Oh, oh, I can rely on His faithfulness maybe on Thursdays. Rest of the week, eh, not so sure. Baloney. Scriptures say that His faithfulness reaches to the heavens. You can't measure it. The Apostle John wrote, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. If we're going to enjoy fellowship with each other and find joy in the fellowship that God desires for us to have as brothers and sisters in Christ in this church, that must be the overflow of the joy we find from Christ day by day, moment by moment. Because let's be honest, we as people, we fail. We are not perfect. We do drop the ball. And we are people who oftentimes find ourselves as people who may be a joy robber into somebody else's life. But Jesus will never be that to you. We can enjoy the forgiving, sanctifying, saving love of Jesus. A joy that will flood your soul. And this joy is further enhanced by glimpses of the love that goes on between the members of the Godhead. Eternal, unchanging, always abundant with each other. There's much to be found. And that is the overflow of that. It comes as we abide and and enjoy communing with our God through Jesus Christ, and the joy can now grow among us. Here's a question for you. Do you think Jesus would ever describe the time that he spent in prayer, like let's say in John 17, would you think Jesus would ever describe the time he spent in prayer with his Father as drudgery, as burdensome duty, as something he had to get through? on a daily basis. You see, Jesus delights in His Father. It is absolute joy to be in His presence. There's nothing but, but blessing on all sides. And, and in this, Jesus found great joy in His relationship with God. And what I want to suggest to you is you say, well, when I do that, I feel like i got nothing to say and I feel like all I'm doing is, is, is just rehearsing all the ways I failed God. Would you take a moment just think? when you come to God through Jesus Christ, the same approval that God gave to Jesus, you are my Son in whom I'm well pleased, is the same approval that you now have because you are united to Christ. And therefore, when you come, Jesus is like God the Father is saying, come on in. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to spend time with you. I'd want to hear what's on your heart. I want to make sure you understand how much I love you today. How much I've got grace for you. How much I'm right there with you. See, Psalm 1611 says that when we're in the presence of God, there's not this sense of drudgery and misery and burdensome duty. When we're in the presence of God, it says there is fullness of joy. I don't know about you, but I tell you, I need fullness of joy and I'm not going to find it anywhere else in this life in a lasting, significant way as you will in Christ. So therefore, The challenge before us is what? Look at Luke 24, and then I'm done. Luke 24, the last chapter of that gospel. We've gotten through that hard time of Jesus' death. Many of them saw him suffer. Many of them were confused by it. Many of them couldn't make sense of it. They knew he was buried. They were in in utter dismay. They were grieving. They were sorrowful. And they get to Luke 24, and at the end... Jesus now has had a chance to talk to them after his resurrection. He's had a chance to set them straight. They've had a chance now to see his great victory over death. And so we read here at the end of that wonderful book, last three verses, four verses, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. Verse 50, he lifted up his hands, he blessed them. It came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And they returned to Jerusalem. So here's Jesus now leaving them. He's going up into glory. So they are left behind. They're on their own now. And so what did he say? They returned to Jerusalem. How? With a little bit of joy. With just a little bit of, you know, well, you know, at least at least we got to see that. No. With great joy. And were continually in the temple praising God. Why? Because they'd worshiped the living and conquering a victorious Son of God. And so I say again, for a church to be joyful, we need joy. Why? Because the challenges before us are great. There's more work to be done, less hands to do it. And so I'm challenging us as a church, pray, pray, pray. Enjoy Christ. Come to Him every day. Draw from that wellspring of joy in Him and may the joy of Christ be our strength. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there are those here today who have begun to see in a new way what joy means and they've begun to realize that they have never experienced a joy that comes through Jesus Christ. I pray that today, Lord, that their hearts will be drawn into honesty and vulnerability and openness before God to admit their sin, admit their need of a Savior, to confess that they have no means of cleansing themselves, to remove all their shame and their their many long lists of offenses. We pray, Lord, that they might, to this day, throw away their rags of self-righteousness and that they might embrace Christ, trusting him fully in what he's done on the cross for them, they might receive him as Lord and Savior, benefiting from all that he's done for them and paying for their sin, and rising for their forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that today they would indeed know the joy of salvation. Lord, by your Spirit, would you work that in the heart of anyone who's here today? who needs to know that joy, who longs for it, who will come to Christ. And Father, I pray for those of us who have tasted of that joy. I pray, Lord, that we would have a continual abundance of tasting the joy of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts into greater unity and greater with each other and with greater joy before your presence. And that joy will spill over, Lord, into all of the challenges we find in life that we might have your outlook, that we might have your calmness of soul and satisfaction of soul because we are enjoying Christ day by day, moment by moment. Lord, apart from you, we will never have joy. So we pray that you would do a mighty work in us by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.